Hello everyone, this is Will from Little Lens. Uh, we have a special bonus episode for you guys this week. Uh, we interviewed the author Krista Avampado about her new book, Where the Light Enters. It's a young adult novel, which is clearly why we interviewed her, and she was interested, so we did it. We talked about the YA genre, uh, her novel, what it's about, what to expect, um, what it's like getting your book published, what it's like writing, what it's like balancing work life with creative life and stuff like that so we hope you guys enjoy let's start so have you always been a writer i have been i remember from the time i was a little kid i was always thinking about stories i was writing and and uh, i always thought characters were so interesting i grew up in a really insane family so there was all kinds of uh wild stuff that was always always happening in our house so my father was a clinical psychologist Mm -hmm. he had his practice in our home And so he had this idea that if you brought people into a normal family setting, that that would somehow aid their therapy. But he treated people who were really sick, I mean, multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia, uh, manic depressive, and on the very far end of the spectrum. So I had memories of sitting around my dinner table with my family, and there would be his patients. (laughs) So for me, it was, um, sometimes a little frightening, but okay. also they they really started to play this you know role in my mind, and so the stage play that I wrote, which is called Sing After Storms, is actually based on my dad and based on that time in my life of inviting patients who are very ill into a family with kids yeah. <laughs> and having them sit around the dinner table. So for me, I think uh, for better or for worse, that sort of started me out on a path of being a writer because it was a way to make sense. Yeah of what was happening. And I find, you know, there's that great quote of, you can survive anything if you can put it into a story. And I, I think that that was, has definitely been true my whole life. Were you conscious at that time that I want to be a writer, these people are going to be food for my creative outburst? Like, did you have little note cards around your room? With- I mean, I've been keeping diaries since I was like in second grade. <laughs> so I always have, and I'm, I'm a pretty voracious uh, list maker outliner and that's also still how I approach my writing so I was always jotting down like little ideas (laughs) I loved English class I was if I had to pick favorites I mean I really I loved school and school was a real refuge for me but I really loved my English classes and my history classes and so I was writing all the time and I had a couple of really really good English teachers from the time I was in elementary school who really encouraged my writing and so I was very lucky um, so I, I still have like stacks of paper from the time I was a kid that are like crazy little stories <laughs> that I wrote down in it. and it's kind of funny to, to revisit those every once in a while but yeah, yeah. When's the last time you looked through them? Oh gosh it was probably I left New York in 2000 what was that, 2014, end of 2014? And uh, and I had to really, I really downsized. I sold all of my stuff, I packed everything up. Um, And so luckily that stuff survived. Um, I had an apartment building fire in 2009 and I lost almost all of my stuff. And I was lucky to get out of the building. So, and that actually figures into the book. Um, There's a pretty powerful scene where the main character is, is also dealing with a fire. And so luckily that stuff was all packed away in boxes, shoved into a closet, and the fire never got to my apartment. It was filled with smoke, but the flames never got there. So that I had just moved in three weeks before, so that stuff was still like shoved in my closet and actually wasn't touched. And so like wow. thankfully that stuff was saved, yeah. Because wow. <laughs> that stuff is just not 
replaceable. Like yeah. my furniture, all my electronics, my clothes, like that stuff was just trashed. <laughs> but it was, but the things that, you know, were important like that, thankfully, yeah. were still packed away in boxes because I don't look at them very often. So probably when I left New York in 2014 was the last time I really looked through that stuff because I sorted through like, do I want to keep this? Do I need right. this stuff yeah. anymore? Yeah. And I, that stuff I ended up keeping. I, I pitched a lot of old stuff, but not, not that stuff. <laughs> That's quite a rude entrance into your new apartment building. Yeah. Welcome to the neighborhood. Yeah. Welcome to the na- And I had lived in that neighborhood for a while, and I had just moved into this apartment that was such a great deal. And it turned out that uh, my apartment had been renovated, most of them hadn't, and a woman um, on the first floor blew up her gas stove. Um, so she's a hoarder. She spilled stuff on the stove. The stove exploded, and instead of just shutting off the gas, she ran out of the apartment. And so her apartment went off, and it was right in my line of units really? so it just went like straight wow. up the straight up the the column there yeah, yeah. so let me ask you as like i think the question i wanted to get to was yeah if you looked at your old stuff how mm-hmm. does the not the tone but the content compare to what you're writing today yeah so i think that a lot of that content actually lives on i think you know we there are parts of us that are every age we've ever been right and i think part of writing particularly writing young adult literature is that you have to go back to those feelings and and it's difficult right like nobody says oh my teenagers were the best like no no one says that right like they're all filled with like you're dealing with very difficult issues you're dealing with really hard truths about life and yet you're still very hopeful about what you can do with your life and so there's this really weird dichotomy which I think makes it perfect ground for a writer because there's so many different directions you can go in but you have to go back to those times and you have to go back to the person you were and so for me you know reading through those diaries and those notes like sometimes I'm, I'm reading them like this like through, <laughs> through like <laughs> through my fingers um but I think it's really important to go back and revisit those memories and those times. And the people who were part of those times for you, really, you can put them into characters or at least pieces of them. So sometimes I get the question of, oh, well, do you feel like, are you always the person who's the protagonist in your story? Because the protagonist based on who you are. And I would say that they are all who I like the good ones, the bad ones, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the protagonists, the antagonists, they're all, the great thing is you can take all the parts of your personality and, you know, and put them into these different characters. So that's what I do. Yeah. So the, maybe like the unsavory parts are the antagonists mm-hmm. and your good parts are the protagonists. Yeah. And we all have those parts. I think, you know, no one's as bad as, bad as they seem or as good as they seem, right? Like we all have those kinds of sad, dark things about our thoughts or our feelings, and, and I think writing for me has always been a way to sort of let those out and mm-hmm. let them go in a, in a healthy way that actually produces something that you know could be valuable. Yeah, it reminds me, um, in Harry Potter, just kind of reading the third, rereading the third, but the Dementors in Harry Potter are actually based on J.K. Rowling's like feelings of depression when she was younger, so oh, she like funneled those that. into like actual, mm-hmm. interesting, yeah, mm-hmm. wow, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think th- those books are so rich in storytelling, and so in for the YA genre, I think like those books sort of put it on the map. I think not that not that others didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Sort of people like Judy Bloom were out there, you know, decades ago with really mm-hmm. incredible YA literature. But I think in terms of bringing YA to, it's not just for teens anymore in yeah. a way, <laughs> but making it that everybody reads that genre. And then I think what happened after her books and what's happened in the genre as a whole has been really amazing so of course like she's been a huge influence on me and I think anybody who's writing YA today would it would be tough to say that she hasn't right. you know influenced them in some way that's true because you could write really what she proved I think is that you could write very sophisticated content 
and have it be successful and have it be for that genre. So people talk about her work as cross-genre work, but it is very much rooted in like the principles of, of YA. And I think that that is something that finally, you know, uh, YA authors and also YA readers have finally got the credit they deserve for being able to handle content mm -hmm. and lengths of books mm -hmm. that were much longer than I think the publishing, the general publishing world was used to, to doing. Yeah, definitely. Which has been great. Yeah. But yeah, Dark Air Park definitely brought, especially with the movies, brought it to the forefront of pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, and now they're super popular. Now they're everywhere. They're everywhere. <laughs> um, so is this the first? Novel that you've written. Mm -hmm. it, it is. is. Yeah, How is it that is. process? So we should say that the novel is called Where the Light Enters. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, the book starts out. You meet fifteen-year-old Emerson Page, who is the protagonist of the story, and she has been struggling with um, post-traumatic stress syndrome, with depression. She has uh, a therapy dog who plays pretty prominently into the story, and she lives in New York City. Her mother was killed five years before. We meet her and she was found murdered on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but there was no explanation to what happened to her. So it goes into a cold case and it, this is what sort of starts her trauma. And she cannot give up like looking for what happened uh, to figure out what happened to her mother. And so that, that through line leads her on this very dangerous adventure uh, into this world of books. Her mother was a really famous anthropologist. Um, and was very much tied to the literary world, to ancient texts. And so she actually finds herself going down this road um, into a very dangerous world of books and she leads her to a secret underground library that's below the streets of New York City. And that's where most of the story takes place. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were gifted the first 47 pages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which we both read. We would like some more. Yeah. <laughs> it was very good. So how long is the book? Total yeah, so the total, um, so the word count is about 56,000 words, which is a kind of an average which falls into to YA literature. Um, it ends up being a, about like 250, 300 pages, um, which is kind of an average, you know, depending upon how the book is set and yeah. that the kind of thing. But there are, there are really still standards in publishing of between, you know, you have sort of uh, guideposts of like, right. we're writing a YA book and we're going to publish it. And especially if you're a first time author, we want you in this. Could be a thousand pages. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, then yeah. you get to then you get to J.K. Rowling book five and no one edits it. Right. Exactly. And a lot of times authors will use it well like J.K. Rowling does it. And uh, there's a woman named Cheryl Klein who is uh, she's an editor for Scholastic and she was very much involved in the Harry Potter books. She wrote a great book that just got published called The Magic Words, which anybody who's writing YA literature should read this book. It's amazing. And so she hears this all the time from authors like, well, J.K. Rowling doesn't. She's like, great. When you write a series that's as successful as Harry Potter do whatever you want <laughs> because her first if you go back and read that first book it is nothing like her later books right like her later books get so much more sophisticated they get so much more layered they're a lot they're, longer and they're better they're better yeah exactly you go back and read that book and you're like oh wow that's not nearly as good yeah. as the later books but because harry's 10 Right? When right. the books start. Like, so she's writing from that perspective. Right. When he gets to be 16, 17, 18, I mean, he's a totally different person, yeah. right? So he's, she writes then from that, you know, that vantage point. And I think she was also, at the time, figuring out her craft, too. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so I think when you start, when you think about starting a series, um, I, I think, you know, you have, you have to start where the character mm -hmm. starts, right? And right. so that's, that was sort of what I, what I went with. <laughs> Do you see this as a series, or is this a... 
I do see it as a series. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, um, so the so the first sort of really really solid draft is done. Now that draft took two, you know, it was two years and like many 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 rounds of edits, <laughs> um, and so now it's just starting to go out to you know indie publishers and agents, which is another whole road uh, that we'll we'll get, we'll we can talk about. Yeah. Um, but I have just started uh, outlining sort of her second book, and this second book will actually take her out of New York City, which has always been her dream to. Yeah. go for it. So, um, yeah, so I have started working great. on that second book. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. So how has this process been writing your first novel as opposed to like anything else you've written in the past? Yeah, so I actually, uh, I, as I said before, like I'm, I'm a really, really uh, dedicated outliner. So some people are not, they just want to free write and I, my, my brain just cannot work, it can't work that way. Like I need an outline to layer things on top mm-hmm. of and so I think of it like you build a house and you don't go, you know, painting the trim for that's not the first thing you do you need to really build that solid foundation and then you can do whatever you want with it but that scaffolding to me is is really really important and it also lets me it lets me chart progress and it it helps me figure out like where I'm going and how how close I am to getting there and so I'm someone who needs you know what gets measured gets done <laughs> and I, I need that personally like in every aspect of my life um, but especially in, in my writing so I really spent a long time on the outline. I did write the first draft in 30 days, so I participated in National Novel Writing Month um, in November 2014, and I wrote the first draft in 30 days. So that was, and it was terrible, but it was, but at least it was, it was was written, and it could, you can, then you can do something with it, and then it's been, uh, since then, I guess I really, just a couple months ago, um, probably when I like first started talking to you, that's when I had really I was like, okay, I'm I'm now ready to write a query letter to an agent because I feel okay about an agent mm-hmm. reading this. So that was like almost a two year, two year process. Wow. Mm-hmm. How many edits or editions would you say? Uh, at least six okay. full yeah. full rounds of yeah. editing, uh, and then I have a couple of very close friends who've been part of this process for a long time, and so they've read parts of it and given me feedback on it, which has been really, That's which helpful. has been super great. Yeah, so are you so a helpful. big tinkerer, or can you, like, have a draft and be like, take it, like, it's it's done for draft three, or is it like, yeah. please, like, there's one more, like, semicolon I can add? No, so I I give it away, <laughs> and then I that's healthier. That I give it away, and then I am still tinkering with it myself, but I'm not irritating my you know my Very friends well. who are reading. <laughs> And they're also, you know, I only have friends read it who are willing to give very tough feedback. Like they're not precious with my feelings. They're, and I'm, I'm also not precious with my work. So I feel like it, you know, you need to really give it a good scrub. <laughs> so I'm fine with that. That's good. That's <laughs> yeah. Good. Do you find that, because you are a freelancer as well, do mm-hmm. you find that that's helped, like that training of getting those edits? has helped yes. you with this yes I mean enough? there are people who have just like ripped my work like up down and apart and it's um, and I really as as painful it's there's like this little twinge of pain that happens when you first get negative feedback you're like oh I worked so hard on that but it you do really have to see it as a gift it's all it's not none of it is ever done in, in meanness it's done to make the piece better and I have a couple of editors that I've worked with who have just been so great about that and sometimes they've said like Krista this is this needs to go in the trash. <laughs> like, it's just like you need to start over on a piece that I've written, and I'm like, oh, you're 
Katie. 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 And I'm, I'm so I'm so devastated. And they say it very nicely, but that is the root of what they are saying. Um, and I just didn't get it right the first time. And so I think you you sort of forgive yourself for not getting things right and not not things not being perfect. And I think that's a hard thing for any artist. It's really hard for a writer. But I think if you don't get there, you won't ever write anything. <laughs> if you feel like it has to be perfect before anybody reads it, like that stuff just sits in a drawer and collects dust. And that doesn't help anybody. Mm -hmm. So I would rather put out something that's completely imperfect and a mess, mm -hmm. but at least someone's looking at it and providing feedback and getting you know some kind of value out of it. And as a as a profession, I'm a product developer, and so that idea of like the minimum viable product mm -hmm. is really valuable for a writer you know, to be able to, to have that. And so I sort of bring that into my writing of like, what's the leanest draft I could give someone that at least they get where I'm trying to go yeah. and they can help me sort of refine it and yeah. navigate. Well, it's good your, your friends or your editors are so harsh with you because yeah. it's better than being like, well, you know, it's a, I get it. Well, I don't really get it, but yeah. it's great. Yeah. But it's, like I would never let my mother read anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's great, yeah. It's so great. Yeah. No, it's not, mom. It's terrible, but she right. thinks everything I do is great, you yeah. know? And that's so, yeah, exactly. So that's <laughs> not, um, and that's not what, as a writer, that's not what you need. Like you need to know that someone cares about you as a person yeah. and they care about the work and sometimes those things have to be separate. Yeah. So. What's the best piece of editing and criticism you've received or most valuable? Oh wow, most valuable for editing. I, uh, I was actually writing a piece, um, so I, it was actually done very recently, so I have a, a good friend, her name is Amanda Hirsch, uh, and she works for a company called Leafly, and so she asked me to go back to a time in my professional life when I had to use optimism in a very difficult time, so it was a nonfiction piece, uh, and I said, okay, great, so I went and I, I, I wrote the piece, and she was like, ah, she's like, this is a little too neat, it's a little bit too wrapped up with a big bow on it and she's like I want to see a little I want I need to see more struggle like that it wasn't so easy and I think in that idea when we think about our past events or you know things that have happened to us there is this desire to sort of smooth over all the rough edges right to get rid of the nasty parts and but the nasty parts are what readers identify with right like we don't talk enough about failure and struggle and difficulty like we have now facebooked our entire society right of like only the shiny moments please <laughs> right. Right. and i think that 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 is a real danger of letting that creep into your mind as a writer that you don't hang on to the really like ragged ugly yeah. edges because those are the things that teach you you know those are the moments where you grow and so uh, i've had a, a quite a few editors who have who have said like, mm, too clean, Krista, too neat, <laughs> too sweet. <laughs> and that's, that has been sort of a, a common theme. And so now I really try to, to check myself. Um, but it's, it's hard because you also don't want to be, it's, it's hard to write about yourself in that way, but you also want people to feel hopeful too. And so I think sometimes I go a little bit too far of not giving enough of the ugly stuff because I'm afraid that it'll discourage people. Because who wants to say, oh yeah, let's sign me up for that painful moment. That sounds great. Like, no one wants that, right? And always like I want readers to take action or to use the content in a positive way in their own lives. And so I think there is this predisposed bias to, you know, to only, only show the, the good things. Reminds me of the Halloween party I went to last night, where I had to take pictures of people <laughs> dressed up. But it, it takes, you know, 
eight or nine pictures to get the one picture that's going to be yeah. used. Mm-hmm. Where everyone's smiling or everyone's looking at the yeah. right. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. But kind of the funnier, more real, authentic moments are the ones where people are like screwing around. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Someone's like half eyes. Yeah. Right. And I think Instagram has done that, right? Like we have filtered our lives right like oh look at how vibrant these colors are (laughs) and like and that's great yes those moments are really those images are really inspiring but that's also not what the world like really looks like and so we've sort of tainted our you know our whole vision there so i don't know hooray for authenticity i guess (laughs) do you think that being a ya author you have a different not perspective but a different purpose than if you wrote let's say a not adult or like mystery or a different kind of writing. Yeah, so I, I do think because I mean YA literature now is is for everybody, but you still have to you're writing for your target market still, you know, always. And I think that those um I, I think like that genre in particular really really requires that kind of nuance you know it really like they are going through tough things and they want to see other people and they want to see characters in their books that are going through really tough things and they want to know that they're going to come through them um and that you know that time it's just it's it's such a rich time of discovery and so i think as an adult you're a little bit more fully formed maybe <laughs> mm, okay. um, or you just act it you know yeah. you just pretend you are exactly um and i think that a lot of times, I think adult books that are written for an adult audience, like people are trying to break out of their patterns, or they're you know they're they're dealing with uh, not that there aren't challenges, but they're different challenges than what a 13, 14, 15 year old is is dealing with. And so I think that um, it had there's a very different perspective there that I think needs to be honored and you know and used to its to its full extent. So I, I do think writing with a YA lens is is different for for that reason. But you bounce back and forth, right? So your play mm-hmm. is more it's adult. It's more for adults. Do you yeah. find did you find that to be difficult? Like, did you have to tap into different areas of your writerly brain? Yeah. So what was hard was in that play in particular because I was because a number of the characters are based on characters from my own life. Um, the there is a young girl who's eighteen, and so that I do really see her as me. But the story is not told from her perspective. The story is told from uh, from the writer who's really the character who's really based on my dad, and so I had to have an enormous empathy for him, which in real life I don't, and so that was very difficult of seeing like what did he really believe? Like he believed he was doing the right things by his patients. And I don't believe that. So I really had to take, in order to write from his perspective, I really had to take that viewpoint. And that was really, that was difficult. I think it's a little bit different in writing this book in in many ways while writing, you know, in, in a play, all you really have is dialogue. Like you put stage directions in there, but most directors and actors completely throw them out and pay zero attention to them, unless you're somebody like, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and you're playing a huge role, you're, you have a role in the show, you're a producer, you're the lyricist, but unless you are that kind of playwright, most people will only take your dialogue and that's it. So that's, so that's your vehicle to tell your story. And so in a lot of ways, that's much easier. In a book, and especially in a fiction book, you are creating a whole world for your readers. And so you've got a lot more tools, but it's sort of that, you know, that paradox of choice idea of like, oh, 
God, there's so much I have to do and so many different vehicles I can use. And so that's actually a lot more, I think it's a lot more challenging to write, particularly to write a novel for me than it was to write a stage play for that, for that reason. I would say there are plenty of people who would say that exact same construct makes it more, makes it more difficult to write a play because you are so limited. But for me, it was the opposite. Because I feel like you don't see a lot of examples of people who are able to successfully bounce back and forth. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, it's got to be like, the, you know, your brain. Just. Yeah. You go, you just go into a different mindset. And I worked in theater professionally as a manager for a long time. And so I also had that lens. So plays were just very familiar to me. Those constructs were familiar to me. Like I, I got it. Um, and... I could also put on the hat of if I was the producer, okay, like the set has to be minimal. Like there's all of these things that you think about. Um, and so that, you know, that really trimmed down the process of writing a play. But I do think that, you know, writing for different audiences, it requires a lot of empathy and it also just requires a lot of time. Like I had to, like thinking about writing a YA book, I really had to go, I had to spend a lot of time just thinking about getting in that mindset and I also spend a fair amount of time volunteering with kids in that age range and so that was also really helpful um, but I think that's why so many it, it is difficult a lot of people just pick a lane and they say this is the genre I write in and I think for me I'm always trying to learn and grow and do different things in my life in general mm -hmm. and so my writing is, is just it's just, just an extension of that. So when you were writing this novel were you reading anything at the same time it was you were using as like influence or inspiration in um, any YA novels or different genres? Yeah, so I'm actually always reading. Some people say that they can't read and write at the same time, like it's too much of a distraction or it influences them too much. And whenever I would get stuck, I would go in and, and mm -hmm. read. Yeah, and so for me, and I read everything from like, you know, journals about neurology <laughs> to you know through to YA novels so like it really really runs the gamut um, but there um, there are a couple of authors who I really love um, so Alice in Wonderland is my favorite book and so I can go back and read like snippets of that and, mm -hmm. and be inspired by that story um, we talked about some of the other books I love but I also love uh, Rainbow Rowell and Pseudonymous Bosch um, they have these this real they, they really believe in the power of young people and so for me that you know reading books that have that kind of bent of you know young people are so much more powerful than we give them credit for they're so much more capable than we give them credit for they think more deeply than we give them credit for and so reading books that have that lens from the author was always really was really helpful for for me yeah yeah, and also if I went two years without like reading anything else other than my own work, like oh my god, how boring! Like I just and it also really it changed the book. There's a character in the book. His name is Truman, um, and he he works in this coffee shop because it also figures prominently into the story. But he is also an inventor. He's an incredible. He has an incredible mechanical mind, and so reading you know scientific journals and things about technology, which is the field I work in professionally, that really shaped who he is as a person. Um, so there were definitely and I have all kinds of notes and links of like oh this influenced this and this scene and this character and so that's all there I use a program called Scrivener um, which I really 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 love uh, and it's so easy to take those notes and, and get them all down and so my you know my, my Scrivener file for this book is you know huge it has all kinds of things like that in it. so I want to ask you about something you just said you some of your favorite YA novels the authors believe in the power of young people yeah um do you find, speaking to the writing aspect, yeah. do you, you kind of have to have the same mindset, right? Like you were writing to believe that the readers you're trying to reach 
like, uh, you know, they're smarter than we give them credit for, yes, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, and I think that society really discredits them. They're just kids. Like, they don't know any better. And if we go back and we think about when we were teenagers, like, that was such a frustrating thing to be put through. Everybody felt at some point in their, their years when they were growing up that they were not given the credit that they were due. Right. And so I think that that is very much a universal theme. And yet as adults, we do that all the time. So one thing that I really wanted this story to be about was really to make it a multi-generational story so that the adults in the story um, and the younger people in the story are really partners in this. And I think in society in general, we're so keen to say millennials do this, Gen Xers do this, baby boomers do this. This is what they like. We paint them with such broad brushes when in reality, nobody fits perfectly into any one of those boxes. I have friends who are a lot younger and friends who are a lot older, and that's been true my whole life, and that's been a really wonderful part of my life that I hope is always true. And so I, when I was writing, I really wanted to break out of that kind of construct that we have in society. And I think that's one thing that YA novels can do better, maybe better than other novels, is that you can imagine a world that's very different than the world that we live in. You don't have to be stuck in, this is what someone's world is like. And I think with YA literature, readers are just so likely to you know, suspend their idea of reality. They are willing to go with you. you know, under, and, and, if, and if readers aren't, they don't read that genre. Right? <laughs> so you don't have to stick to, well, is that realistic? Like, you, you don't have to think about that because people are reading the genre largely to, to get away from their own lives. You know, it's, it's, I do feel like it is a form of escapism in a very healthy, good way. Mm-hmm. And so as a writer, that just, that opens up, right. you know, whole avenues for you that you may not have if, you know, if my character was 70 years old and was struggling with some kind of loss or a change, you would have to be, I think, a little bit more rooted in, in reality. If you were trying to tell a story that's in the world that we live in, that would be harder. But I think with YA literature, you can really blow that open and you can create the world you want instead of just the world that you live in. It's interesting, when uh, I was reading um, the PDF that you sent us of the novel, noticed that the the adults played like a pretty prominent role they in Emerson's mm-hmm. life and yeah. it seemed like a story. Yeah. And that's, you don't always find that with YA novels, especially mm-hmm. with the ones, the books that we read, the whole right. right. and Wallflower right. and um, Mirrorland. Like, yeah. The parents mm-hmm. are there, they're kind of like placeholders. Right. They're not really involved in the story. Yeah. But with your story, they, they were involved. Yeah. They were kind of almost directing Emerson in certain directions. Yeah, and, and really, uh, not to give anything away, but at the end, that sort of flips, right? Like she becomes a huge influence on them and their thinking. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, at, at the beginning of the book, she's really being led. And her story is by the end of the book, she's leading. Right. And so that's a huge, you know, transformation, right? That we all go through yeah. as becoming adults or more adult. Right. <laughs> and it's one thing about books that, my books in particular, it does, it seems that you think like, oh, well, like these teenagers live in a world like all by themselves. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like right. what teenager lives in a work, a world all by themselves, right? Like they're influenced constantly by adults. And I think as adults, it's important for us to be, open to them and what they think and how they see the Mm. world and so I wanted to write a book that really captured it like I love John Green's books like I think Mm. he's amazing he is someone who writes about 
you know, The Faults in Our Stars is not really about the adults at all. I mean, they play such a minor role, and I think that's true in a lot of YA novels. It's one thing that I do love about that Harry Potter series is that that is not true, right? You, that is very much a multi-generational story, and it's a belief in both directions, in each other. And that, to me, is really inspiring, and, and that's really the world that I wish that we lived in. So maybe we will live in it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't because we just don't know about it. Right, exactly. Maybe it's just not my world. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. I think that, 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 that. You go on Twitter right now, like the hashtag millennials. You You're right. 75,000 mentions last Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, can we transition into your writing, being a writer while you're also a full-time, working full-time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the challenges with that? How do you find the, like, find the time to yeah. be creative when... A lot of your brain is being sucked up in like the day mm-hmm. of yeah. corporate greed and <laughs> right. capitalism, money making. Yeah, yeah. uh, that was something that was it was really frustrating to me. Uh, I guess it was a few years ago that I I was having a tough time balancing. Like I was doing it, but I was exhausted all the time, and I I didn't always feel like I had a good sense of balance with it. And so I quit my full time job. I decided to freelance. That was a really great three-year journey, but it was very difficult financially. Um, I did it, but it was difficult. And I was then I really decided at the end of the time, I'm just going to write full time and see how this goes. And like that, I did not enjoy. <laughs> one, one, it was hard to make money. Um, and again, like I could cover all my bills, but that was better, which is like a big thing, which is great. But it was. Um, for me, it, that was a really difficult thing. I also felt like a part of my brain wasn't being used in the way that I was used to using it in a business sense. And so I actually did go back to work full time um, for that reason. If I felt like, well, I needed to feel financially stable and secure in order for me to write my best work because my best work was not written during that time that I was a full time writer. Hmm. I find that my better work happens when I don't have all day to write, when I don't, like, I actually need to be limited mm-hmm. <laughs> and I need a, a deadline. And so I, I set up my own deadlines, but I find when someone else is counting on you to do something, that is always a more stringent deadline than something, at least sure. for me, that I'm going to set for myself. Um, and so going back to work full time, and also I was also learned so much. So I'm a product developer for a healthcare tech company. And so we work on artificial intelligence products. And so for me, that is a very stimulating, rich field that does figure into my work. So one of the things that Truman has developed is an AI product. Now, I wasn't working in AI at the time that I wrote that, but I was doing a lot of research about AI because I was really interested in it and then was ultimately able to make this jump to a job a few months ago where that's what I do professionally. And so that was actually, that has been great. And so for me to have the financial freedom that I can pursue, I don't have to always get paid my writing. Like I can spend time writing a book for two years that you know, hasn't made a penny. Like it's been a really great joy for me, but I, I didn't have to make any money off of this writing and so therefore I could I could write the way I wanted I could write the content I wanted I could really you know immerse myself in that creative process because you know paying all of my bills wasn't contingent on doing mm-hmm. my writing so it actually in some ways really really freed me up there are times that I get frustrated like this past week is a really great example <laughs> it's a very stressful week for a number of reasons but work was very very stressful mm-hmm. And it will be this coming week and probably up until Thanksgiving. And so it, it was very frustrating to me. Like I would get to the end of the day and like my brain would hurt <laughs> because I was, I was working so hard all day that I didn't have as much to give my writing as I really wanted to. 
And so I sort of learned that balance isn't, uh, it's not something you have to have every day. It's over a continuum. Like I'm not going to give everything I have to my writing and everything I have to my job on the same day in the same moment. Like that's mm-hmm. expecting too much, right? Mm-hmm. But it's okay for some days to be like, well, my pressure looks okay today. I might do really rich writing <laughs> or, or vice versa. You can, you know, you can have that, that balance over time. Is there a certain amount you feel like you need to get done every day to have like a, you know, a thumbs up day? Yeah, so I do write every day. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times it's crap. Um, but, <laughs> but I publish on my blog every day. Um, and so, and I've had that since 2007. So that has been really helpful. And sometimes those are just like, most of the time it's really just things that are happening in my life or things that I find inspiring or things that I want to you know, put a spotlight on. Um, and so if I can just get that entry done, I feel like that's, Okay, like I won. (laughs) If I have like 15 minutes to just sit down and write. And some people don't, you know, some writers are like, well, you don't have to write every day. That's not how you, and for me, I feel like if there are, there's a day here and there that I don't write, it's like not brushing my teeth. Like it just doesn't feel like a good day. Um, Even if all I had, you know, to write was 15 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour, you know, that's, that's okay. Yeah. How, how do you physically write it? Is it a laptop? Are you on a desk? Are you in like a comfy chair? Do you yeah. have water, wine, like <laughs> tequila? Yeah. Like, what's your what's I your tried name? the alcohol, but now that you say that, it's like, hmm, maybe next time I'm stuck, I should try that. Uh, sometimes it helps, sometimes, uh, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I, uh, I do write mostly on my laptop. Um, on occasion, I will, you know, write out lists. There was, um, there are a couple scenes for this, this book, um, where the light enters that I I hadn't thought about writing until I went back and just reread it this past time. Actually, when I was writing the, the putting up the sample for you guys to read, and I was like, oh, what about that scene? <laughs> you know, there are always like these cut scenes or like more detail, and so those I actually wrote out longhand. And I don't even know why I did that. I guess I was just sitting up in bed, and I was like, it was easier for me to do it that way. But most of the time, when I'm when I'm really writing something, I prefer to do it on my laptop. Some people only like Stephen King only writes in longhand, which I just think is so amazing. Jerry Seinfeld talks about he's never written on a computer like he writes all of his jokes and those legal yellow patterns yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's just how he works you know, that's just his process um, I actually do I'm a big fan of uh, story webs so I'll uh, and I do I do index cards too so that's really helpful at least for fiction I mean my whole play I outlined on index cards and then I could move the scenes around and so that was really helpful. The book was a little bit different because I didn't necessarily, I wrote that really from beginning to end where a play can have things that are you know happening at multiple times mm-hmm. and it was a little bit easier to switch scenes around than in a play than it was for a book at least in my mind. Um, and then uh, I don't have a desk. I don't, okay. I don't sit at a desk. I sit at my dining room table. I'll sit on my yoga mat. I'll I'll sit on the couch, but I don't. Yeah, I don't have a. And I don't think I would ever have a desk in my house. I, I used to. It was funny when I my last time I was in New York. I was like, I'm, I'm gonna be a real writer. I'm gonna get a desk. I get this great desk I really loved, and I never sat. At it. Like I could. It had a lovely view. It had a very nice chair. It was like it just looked so professional, and I just I couldn't write in it. I do love to write on trains. Uh, I, love, I love that idea of moving and writing is really helpful me. So I'll write on the metro. Um, that of course would all be longhand, um, but that idea of moving while writing, there, there's something that it adds like fluidity. I mean, to, metro to it. most of the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
can never True. Get to yeah, whenever I have like a long plane ride, I always think like, oh my god, this is great. I'm gonna get so much riding done because there you are trapped, and I can't sleep on a plane, so like that's not gonna be an option. Um, and then usually someone is sitting next to me that's taking my armrest, so it's like so I just try to like channel. I put my headphones in, and I just like channel it into my writing. But yeah, writing while traveling was really has been helpful for me. Do you like see the sights? Like, does that help seeing the movement, or just like knowing that you're not in the same place? Yeah, I think it lets me, uh, because I'm not in sort of my comfortable environment, so I can sort of really go into an environment that I create, sort of make myself a little happier. I did write uh, a really short travel book. I went to India for uh, about two weeks um, in, when was that, 2012. And so I wrote a lot of uh, my time that I was in India about what I was seeing. Uh, and that was really, that was more me immersing myself into an environment, really probably the only time that I've ever done that. And I think I might do something like that for this second book about Emerson, that I may, mm. I may try to go to the place where I want her to travel to. And so it's not India. That's like, it's not India. Okay. <laughs> Cross on the Not India. Uh, it's probably Iceland. Oh, okay. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. and that's something that can be done. You know, it's funny. Iceland always sounds like it's so far away, but it's you know, it's essentially you could do it in like three to five days, which is so yeah. crazy. Like it's a it's a really fast flight. You get there. There's a limited number of things to see, <laughs> right. but it's real. It's a really a country that's super rich in storytelling and in fantasy. Like they actually believe in these little magical beings. Yeah, they believe in like, like uh, the gnomes. The gnomes. <laughs> they believe in the real. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that kind of place could be really powerful for, for her. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Cool. So do you want to talk about publishing? Yeah. So yeah. where are you at in that process and how has it been? How did you even get started in that process? And so also we should say we're an explicit podcast. So if you have anything to say about agents, publishers, <laughs> go up. Go just just go for it. Got it, got it. Um, so when I started out writing, you know, in 2007, I started this blog and I decided I wanted to be a really good writer. I was in graduate school at UVA uh, and I was writing for our like, school paper. Wow. Uh, are you guys UVA? Yeah. No way! Yes! <laughs> That's a high five. That is awesome. Um, yeah, I went to Darden to get my MBA. Awesome. And uh, I loved my <laughs> such a good time uh, and I, it was two of like the best years of my life I just I loved it there and I loved that time and I would say that that experience actually really made me believe that I could write professionally right. going there so I had a there's an amazing professor named Ed Freeman who's my ethics professor and he has always believed in my writing we're actually writing a book together now about the power of imagination um, and how it's our most underutilized resource in the country. Uh, and so that has been wonderful. I have a really good friend, Alice, who was the editor of our paper. And she, I had written, um, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and my sister was diagnosed with pre-cervical cancer when I was in grad school. And so I wrote a couple of pieces for our paper about what it was like to be in this intense garden environment and to have this stuff happening with my mm-hmm. family. Um, and... There, my friend Stephen Sweeney, uh, who's a really good friend of mine from Darden, said, well, are you going to continue to write after Darden? And I was like, oh, Stephen, who's going to read my work? And he was like, well, I would read it. <laughs> and so that was enough for me to say, like, oh, okay, like, I guess I could start this blog and I guess I could be writing. Um, and I wanted to just become a really good writer. I thought it was like, I thought I was, had some talent, but I didn't think I was good. But I figured, well, if I write every day, 
I'll get better. <laughs> if I'll right. get good, I'll get better. So that's what I decided to do. And so I wrote for free for a couple of years, like for anybody, any blog who would publish my work. And blogs were really, that was in 2007. So that was really, at that time, it sounds so silly that like nine years ago we really didn't have a blog, but we really right. didn't. There was no right. Twitter. There was, I remember getting my first like Facebook invite. I'm like, yeah, like right. I need something else to worry about right. and now of course like it you know social media helped me be a writer you know it's helped me sell my writing mm-hmm. um, so I would say for you know four or five years like I really didn't make a penny but I, I got a lot of work out there um, and a lot of it's terrible but it was but it was out there and it was helping me become a better writer and then about I guess it was about four years ago I decided that I wasn't I wasn't gonna write for free anymore and if I did write for free it was only gonna be for me I wasn't gonna write for somebody else for free and I've never ghost written mm-hmm. I've had some offers to do that and I I don't have any problem with people who say you know, I'm a ghostwriter and I like doing it. But for me, I was like, God, I spent so long finding my own voice. Like, I'm not going to give it away to somebody else and have them send me a check. Like, I just couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. Like, as a, I wouldn't feel good about myself doing that. So mm-hmm. I don't do it. Um, in terms of getting published, uh, I could get published for free. Then when I started asking for payment, people were like, Oh, like, and there are people who, you know, li- a lot of blogs survived on free content for a long time and, and still survive on free content, you know, and, and I think in some ways writers have really been marginalized in that way. And I felt like continuing to write for free sort of discounted the hard work that it is to be a writer. And so I decided I, I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and it was funny, once I decided I was going to do that, I started getting better assignments in better publications. So now I freelance pretty regularly for the Washington Post um, in their sponsored content section. Ironically, most of it is about health and medicine. Uh, but they're very much these survival stories of people who've come through very difficult illnesses and, you know, come out the other side of it. Um, and then I've written for, you know, a couple of other big publications and magazines, um, which has been really great. But it's, you you have to really be on top of your game to get, so I had to write for all of those years and do a lot of really bad writing and also get used to editing. Like, I've never turned in a piece <laughs> to an outlet like that. This is wonderful. Like right. with, with no changes or no ed- they're like, this is great. And <laughs> and then there's you know a litany of Here's changes. That they, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's always so many changes that need to be made. And so you have to be comfortable taking that feedback and actioning against it. And then I also had to, you know, get to a certain level of my writing in order to be able to say I deserve to be paid for it and to write for for outlets like the post. So um so I'm glad that I spent all that time writing for free because I do think it helped me sort of get where I am. In terms of this book, um, I uh, took a live storytelling class with a, a group called Story District. You ever heard of them? They're really fantastic. They're in DC, um, <clears throat> and, and I love them. Uh, and they, I took a live storytelling class which I have horrible stage fright, so I did this to sort of get over my stage fright. Mm-hmm. So I can sit here and like talk to you guys, but like mm-hmm. standing on stage with like a bunch of eyes staring at me, I think is just horrifying. Did you get over it? <laughs> I, I, well, I had to. Right. <laughs> like I was, yeah. I was, I was shaking a little bit through it, but like yeah. once I was up there for a little while, it got, it got easier. There's a reason why you're a writer and not, you know, a speaker. Right? I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's funny, I can, I can do public speaking, like I've been to South by Southwest and a couple of other places, and that is fine, but telling personal stories on stage or acting is like, it's really, it, that's a scary thing for me, in a way that's not scary if I'm like giving a presentation, like okay. that feels, mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know what, maybe because the content isn't about me, has nothing to do with me, really. <laughs> I'm talking about some product or some like right. business process, and that's uh, it's a part of me, but it's not nearly as personal. Telling a personal, true story on stage was completely terrifying, and that's all that Story District does. Okay. So, um, so that was, they rebranded, they used to be called uh, something else, and then they changed to Story District, and they had this big rebranding party I guess about like a year and a half ago. And so I just finished my class with them. I went to it and I met a woman who's the president and founder of a local publishing house here in DC. And so I was telling her about my book and she said, well, when the draft is done, like send it to me. I would love to read it. I was like, okay, great. So a year and a half later, right. <laughs> I yeah. sent her an email and I say, oh, I, you know, do you remember me? Like I met you at the Story District Party. And she was like, I do remember you and I do remember your book and I would love to read it. So I sent her the first 50 pages um, and she wrote back like a really lovely response they're really busy because they're um she worked really hard to get new independent writers out there um so she's still in the process of reading that at the same time i started writing query letters to agents and i have a couple of agents that are like these dream agents I'm like oh that would be so great and i thought like well let me write uh query letters to agents who are not my dream agents that was my first thought and i was like well that's I should probably like let me just see if I can get one of those <laughs> like to even look at the might letter well. right you might as well try there and then if they never respond they never respond right so I had the my one agent who was like my top top agent I went to uh, this young adult uh, there's the biggest young adult literature festivals in Charleston uh, Virginia uh, Charleston South Carolina every year and I went in 2014 actually while I was writing the first draft of this book and there was an agent there um, who gave a talk who I really, really loved. I was like, she's the one I want. <laughs> and I wrote her name down. And I was like, when this book is done, I'm sending it to her. Um, so I uh, found her online, found out what agent she was with, and sent her a query letter. And less than two weeks later, her assistant wrote back and said, oh, she would, she would love to read the first 50 pages. So right. that might be dead in the water, but what it proved to me was like, I wrote a really great query letter. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's all, like, even if she hates the book and says like, I'm not doing this. I'm like, that letter, that's good. <laughs> because she gets thousands of them, you know, and that's the reality of agents and especially literary agents and especially YA literary. Like, I feel like everybody in the world is like writing a YA book, right? Because there are so, um, it's such a popular genre, right? So she gets flooded with these letters. And so I took all these detailed notes when I was at that conference of like, this is what she looks for in a letter. And I was like, okay, okay. And I went back to those notes when I was writing this query letter and I did exactly what she said to do and then got that response. Wow. So yeah, so we'll, we'll see what, what so, happens. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what, what did she say to do in query letter? Like what, what, when you write, when you sit down to write a query letter, yeah. what is your, like, I mean, the goal obviously is to get it read, but yeah. um, how do you structure it to, to get it seen? Yeah. So the, the piece is like a really tight synopsis of what the book is about. So almost if you think about a, um, a dust jacket or a book, like what is that two or three short paragraph blurb? right what is the story about and don't go on and on and on like very concise very precise about what the what the main theme of the book is 
Uh, she also, and I don't know if this is true of every agent, but it's definitely true of her. Um, she says, you better have done your research about who I've published, what I care about, and what is important to me. She's like, there are plenty of interviews with me online. <laughs> you can go to my Twitter feed. You can see the things that are important to me. And she was like, don't send me a blanket letter that you send to everybody else because I will sniff that out <laughs> in a heartbeat. So I need to feel, I need to know you wrote this letter for me. So in my opening, and I, I actually like walked up to her at the end of her talk and like introduced myself. I'm sure she doesn't remember me. But I but the fact that I was there and I referenced the talk and I knew who she and I really I love some of the people that she's published um, and mentioned their names and their books in the letter um, and then did a really tight synopsis and then you, you thank them and the letter needs to be a page at the most. Mm -hmm. So really really short concise because she does get thousands of these yeah, letters and sense. yeah and her assistants have to burn through them and so I think I don't know this for sure but apparently the process is like the assistants get all of the letters right and they pitch most one like and she's like please don't send me a letter with grammatical errors and spelling mistakes please oh. <laughs> like, and which sounds like it's a so house, you know, that's but like she said you would be shocked at what people send <laughs> that they just don't they it looks like they didn't even reread the letter just don't understand like the importance of <clears throat> a query letter you know because yeah. you're, you might write a great book but if, yeah. if you can't get them to open it exactly yeah. what's the point yeah. yeah exactly and they'll they'll never and even the first 50 pages like and she she was saying you know one thing about when after you get after the query stage okay, you get the 50 pages, like those 50 pages better move. And she's like, you better be telling me something that I want the other 200 or 300 pages. Um, and so she really stressed action and movement. And she was like, put the backstory in the back where it belongs. <laughs> like, I, I wanna know like, who are the main characters? Like, give me a sense of what they look like, but let me form some of my own opinion too. Like she really, I mean, she's been around for a long time um, and she spent a good part of her career as an editor first and then moved over to being an agent. Um, so she has spent a lot of time, you know, deeply like going through books and thinking about story structure. Um, and so those are just some of the things that are really important, um, important to her. She also in the talk, like as, as tough as like that advice sounds, she also just seems like a really genuine person who loves books and loves authors. And she said, I'm always looking for the next great book. She's like, every letter I read, I think like, oh my God, I hope this is the next great one. No. Like she's always like rooting for the person behind that letter, mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really you know beautiful sentiment to have. Yeah, eeny meeny miny mo, like this one's gonna suck. So right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a question I had, I guess. So I think we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. What can we? We read the first forty-seven pages. What can we expect from the second? I guess five six of the book. Right. <laughs> so uh, Emerson is going to go through some pretty difficult uh, trial, like mentally and emotionally and physically. Um, you're going to get introduced to her world that exists below New York City. Um, in the first scene of the book, uh, you actually meet her antagonist. And so she is going to have to come up against that person in a pretty brutal way. Um, she is going to have to make peace with her past, uh, which is a really difficult thing. And she's going to have to you know, grow through a lot of the trauma that she's been experiencing. And she, in the beginning of the book, is so intent on making the adults in her life proud of her and doing what she's told. And, and uh, she's very quiet, like, 
almost mousy, I'd say, in the way I'm painting the book. Like, she's just very sweet, and mm -hmm. she just wants everyone to like her, right? And, but she lives in this world that's a little bit of a bubble, right? Like, her dad has really built this very insular world for her to be a part of, and she is going to have to defy them and break out of that in order, you know, to, to fulfill her, her mission, what she needs to do. So, um, most of my, I am predisposed to like books that are filled with dialogue and action, so that's most of what the book uh, is, and I think that that's partly the theater background, mm -hmm. and partly that I, I like books that are, you know, uh, not that like description and language like isn't important to me, but I, I like to be able to see like where things are going, and I like movement, and so that's, uh, you'll see a lot of that in the, in the book, physically and emotionally and mentally. This has been the main number one focus, and then I'm uh, outlining her second book. I also have another uh, YA book that I started thinking about actually just this time that I was writing, started to write this book. And so I was having a Twitter conversation with Anthony Mason, the journalist from CBS, and he uh, he's funny because he's, he's someone who has this huge passion for music, but he's... Uh, Largely, he reports on the economy, <laughs> but so but he's been able in recent years to really be able to do both. And so Charlie Rose made some kind of comment to him about like, are you an economist masquerading as a music maven or is it the other way around? He's like, I can't tell in your reporting. Um, and I retweeted that and said like, oh, I'd like to know that too. And he wrote back and he was like, well, Krista, I'll never tell, but I will tell you that when I was eight years old, I had a, uh, I had an imaginary radio show, and I was like. Oh, that sounds like the great, uh, you know, a great segue into a YA novel. <laughs> and so I started thinking about that. And so this YA novel is called Favors for the Dead. And it's about um, a young boy who grows up in a small town in upstate New York. His name is Levi, uh, very similar to the town that I grew up in, which was very small and in upstate New York. And he has this uh, radio show that he's starting with his, his friend from school. Um, and people start calling into the show very particular kind of person starts calling into the show, uh, but the show hasn't started yet. But they found a way to reach him, and they need him to do. They need him to help them fulfill like their last wish, and so that is what the, that book is about. So, yeah, there's some ideas. There. Do you like that that idea struck you while you were writing a different, like something else, or does that like annoy yeah. the? No, it doesn't, because I thought like, oh great, like there'll be something after this, <laughs> because you you do like you finish. You know, when I finished this you know, sort of really solid draft of uh, where the light enters, it was really sad for me. Like, because there, there is kind of a mourning, right? If you, even though there was going to be a second book, it's you, you have to let it go. You know, you put it out there into the world. And so that was a real, that was a really sad thing for me. You sent your kid to college. Yeah, that's it. There she, there she, there she, she goes out into the world to be, you know, ripped apart by critics. <laughs> so, um, so that was to know that there were other stories that were coming. And I think sometimes, you know, there are writers who will talk about they don't want to finish a work because they don't know what's coming next. And for me, I felt like because I knew there were other uh, stories in the works, it, it made it easier to, to finish this. Um, yeah, and then I think this book about imagination with my professor at, uh, at Darden, I think, is really is going to be really exciting. So awesome. I'm I'm psyched about that. Awesome. So yeah, those are my two biggest projects. Yeah, that are coming up. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Do you have any more questions? Not even. I think that's it. That was it. That was yeah. That was great. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much. Well, we'd like for whenever this gets published, hopefully, you'd have another interview with us, and we hopefully we can read the whole book and maybe the second and the third and the fourth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
then we're we'll see, we'll see the film out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let us hope. <laughs> thanks so much. And no, it was yeah. great to be here with you guys. And, uh, and thanks for having me come. Yeah. I feel like when they, we heard the children start screaming, it was time to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were pretty loud. So <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thanks.